Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Kittler. And this is episode 36 of our series for 2016. And today's date is Friday the 7th of October. Uh, and Leon, we're talking to Sean Senvertney of My Deal this week. That's right. Uh, My Deal is an online marketing place connecting Australian SMEs to consumers. It's it's a startup. It's a terrific company, and it's going to be terrific talk to him. And uh, after that, we're going to have a chat with Saul Eslake, and we're going to be looking at why the markets are terrified of Donald Trump. And he's also going to be looking at the market reactions to uh, Theresa May announcing uh, March as the start date for Article 50. Yeah, the, the Brexit thing is going to be quite interesting. I mean, it's sort of chalk and cheese compared to what's going on in the US. But, you know, you have to think that Theresa May will be a steady hand. Yeah, yeah. Well, she seems to be quite wily politically. Well, she's pretty smart as the Home Secretary and very tough. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So now, uh, anyway, let's listen to Sean Sinvertney. Sean, tell us about my deal. And uh, you established it a few years ago, and yet it's had spectacular growth. How did you do it? And tell us about it. Yeah, so um, I started my deal at year 2011. Basically, uh, prior to that, I was working uh, on a similar business, which is nightguide.com.au, which is an online nightlife uh, entertainment directory. Uh, throughout that business, um, I get to sit with about close to 300 to 500 face-to-face meetings with small business owners and uh, talk about their day-to-day problems, uh, what they, um, the business problems. So the more I spend time with these SMEs, the more I realize uh, the lack of knowledge uh, these business owners had about um, selling online or uh, attracting customers online and especially doing commerce. Um, online. So taking that feedback on board um, with, with one of the engineers I had working for me that time, we went on to the whiteboard and we, we sketched a model that enables people to quickly sell online, which is what we call a turnkey solution without uh, without adding a lot more complexity. Um, so in, you know, so we, we, we plugged in one supplier, so two suppliers, three suppliers, and now we have about 1,000 suppliers using our platform which gives about 25,000 products available on Mighty Locum Reu. That's, that's pretty amazing. And so these are all suppliers, retailers? Correct. So their contact is with the public or via you? How does that work, the, so the actual selling? Essentially, we are an online marketplace. Uh, so suppliers can uh, come in and list their products on, on Mighty Locum Reu. Obviously, Prior to the listing, there are certain sort of a criteria that we look for, how, how long these businesses have been in business for, uh, how much volume they can handle, uh, any existing feedback, and that kind of stuff. Once once they've gone through that criteria and once all the boxes are ticked, and then we plug them into our portal, which enables them to reach our existing uh, online traffic, which is roughly about 600,000 people coming to our website every month. So they can access that um, that, uh, that consumers through our, uh, through our portal. So my deal... You're you're providing the marketplace, but um, say this person buys a pair of sneakers from that person and they're not happy, you don't get involved in that. That's directly between the supplier and the customer, is it? No, no, we we are directly involved because we're trying to control the customer experience as much as we can. Um, so from this office, roughly, we're sending about 20,000 parcels a, a month at the moment, uh, and all all, th- all of them happen through our established existing supplier network. Um, we know the product, uh, and we know the how, how long it takes to the customers, and, um, and so on. So if the customer got the wrong item delivered, or item arrived damaged, so a customer sends us an inquiry, and it's an inquiry also goes to the supplier as well, and then we... 
perhaps acting as the middleman, as as a third eye. We actually looking at the both parties, and and we make the final call. What happens? So, if for example, if we got the uh, bed item arrived damaged, our customer support team might say, "Can you please send us a picture to verify that?" And once we get the picture, we'll make sure that we can send you a brand new bed frame or return delivery, all that type of stuff. So you would be in close contact with not only suppliers but the customers as well. Yes, yes, hundred percent. Both parties. So growth to some extent would be word of mouth among the customers and performance for the suppliers. Your growth would would depend on those two factors. Correct. So building marketplaces are very difficult, especially in the early early days, because you have to build the both sides of the marketplace uh, at the same time, and one cannot really exist without another uh, and so it's 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 and also you have to have the technological infrastructure the syst- business systems and processes to make sure all this is because marketplaces most of the time you know uh, reducing complexity uh, and adding more sim- simplicity so at the early days it's actually a lot um, difficult but the, the more that now we've been in the business for four or five years so we're getting better and better and better our customer experience our supply networks and all that yeah I'm fascinated by how you could start this company out of nothing yep. and grow so quickly. What steps would you take? What steps would you advise people to take looking to move into this space? Great question. So these days, you know, e-commerce, which is selling online, a lot of people think it's as simple as you, you know, buying something for price X and selling something for price Y and then make something in the middle. But I, I, but that would have worked, I think, um, probably 10 years ago or 2000. But at 2016, uh, the marketplace is highly competitive. There are a lot of bigger players with a lot of deep pockets. And, you know, I think it's just a matter of time. Businesses like Amazon, Alibaba are going to enter into the market. So for uh, I guess say for, for someone who's trying to come into the business, just finding that gap or the niche, the, the, the more targeted, and, and why would you exist uh, when other businesses are already doing exactly selling everything that they could be potentially sold online uh, and what value you can provide. So you need to have those answers to those specific questions, you know, what, what exactly you're trying to, yeah. So, I mean, you would actually have to establish quite a niche with, say, when you're competing against the Amazons and the Alibabas of this world. That is correct. That is 100% correct. So building a marketplace is the, 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 the value. Like I say, building a marketplace takes time and effort. But once you build this ecosystem, it's like an organism that ever evolving. And it gets, it's, it's getting stronger and so, uh, stronger like, like, like anything else. So basically, we have thousands of suppliers that we have plugged in to our um, marketplace. And when we have about 1,000 suppliers, it's actually, there's a lot of value in that, uh, that, that marketplace. So even someone like Amazon or Alibaba arrived, uh, Probably they will look at it as an acquisition in the future, or you know, or we 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 think we're building a good business that can you know <laughs> uh, that that look after our customers and our community, and it's an Australian-grown business, so um, that we can compete with the yeah the, the the big guys. Do you differentiate in the product that your that you get involved in? In other words, you you IT or your food or something like that. How do you create the niche without sort of getting swamped with the sort of everything from Amazon or even more from Alibaba? I mean, Alibaba's sometimes quite confusing to find stuff. It's a huge, huge market. So, but you're a niche player. How do you decide? on the shape of what it would be. Yeah, so in the early days, our, our primary focus was for household goods. So furniture was a very, very popular item. So I think we are one of the number one sellers for 
things like bed frames and mattresses in Australia. Uh, and we've gotten really good at that, um, you know, selling those bulky goods and getting them delivered uh, to the customers. So once we conquer that, uh, um, once we conquered and penetrated that furniture market, then we would go into electronics and pets and toys, household goods and uh, boarding equipment and, and uh, hardware, all that. So even if you look at um, how Amazon started in the early days, it was just focused on books. And once they conquered that particular niche really, really well, and then they went into other things, other things and other things. And now they're into web servers and, and all that. And even if you look at how the Facebook have started, the very first focus of the Facebook was the, the uni students. They from went one campus to a second campus to a third campus, and then they got that they knew that with the early stages it's working on these markets and then went to you know continents and countries yes right okay now what's interesting though is that uh, amazon is now moving into uh, food delivery so what prospects do you see your business exploring and any business the you know being able keeping the business agile and being able to pivot from one thing to the next at a very fast changing environment is quite vital uh so for us uh we have a very young dynamic um team that always identifying the um upcoming trends and potential uh potential business opportunities so um grocery or fresh fresh um delivering fresh produce and and retail is something that we haven't looked into yet but prior to that there are we have identified that many other things that we could be early doing many other things could be doing at the moment in Australian e-commerce market is roughly about 17 billion dollars a year uh, that's include from anything from households goes to fashion um, and, and all that so so there's a there are there are a lot more for us to grab in the marketplace in the, in the near future yeah Right, okay. Now, I have to ask you, how do you recruit? I mean, you're obviously recruiting a really good young team who are right into it and who understand this stuff. What do you do to recruit the best? Yeah, a good question. So our recruitment process are very long. Uh, so basically, obviously, uh, starting from the resume, we um, looked at whether they have uh, any prior similar experiences, any technical background, and then they have a um, normal face-to-face interview, and then, then they have actual trial. We get them people to do some tasks, come to the office, and if they pass that, then they go to a, another trial for about a day or two uh, with the with, with the supervisor. And if, if, if all those are happy, and then we recruit the person. So ideally, what we're looking for is um, uh, pre- pre- people that are with good the attitude is is is, is the number one that they're willing to learn uh, and uh, being able to um, yeah you know put put things together you know it's 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 quite important. Well, it looks like uh, you're moving on to bigger and better things, Sean. It's been delightful talking to you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks indeed, Sean. So there it is. There's always a deal, and if it's my deal, it makes a success, doesn't it? That's right. Yeah, I thought that was really good. And now Saul and the terrors of the American election. Saul, it's like the big issue now, of course, is uh, the market is watching very, very intently on what happens with uh, the Donald Trump versus Hillary Clinton race for the White House. And the other issue is, of course, Theresa May announcing the March date for the Article 50, which, of course, has sent the pound crashing. Uh, what impact? do you think all of this would have on the market? Well, I think the big one is the US presidential election on the 8th of November, because this is a contest for the leadership of what, by one measure at least, is still the world's biggest economy, and however you measure it, the most influential economy in the world, especially from a financial markets perspective. And there is a chance that a rank outsider in terms of political affiliation and, more importantly, economic policy could become what we used to call the leader of the free world. 
Donald Trump has a series of policies that, if he ever got to implement them, would represent a major change to the established order of things in the United States and globally. And they would be bound to have both an immediate impact on financial markets as a result of him winning the election, if that's what comes to pass. And as he sought to implement those policies, there'd be a second and probably bigger round of effects as well. Let's consider a few of those. First of all, Donald Trump is pledged to unwind two of the most important trade agreements that the United States has entered into. One is the North American Free Trade Agreement, or NAFTA, with Canada and Mexico. That doesn't matter a great deal to the uh, Australian economy. Uh, the other is the TPP, or Trade Partnership of the Pacific, which Australia is a party to, as are many other Asian economies, and which the Obama administration is hoping will be legislated during the lame duck session of Congress that sits after the election and before the new Congress takes its place in January 2017. Uh, Hillary Clinton wants to modify the TPP in various respects before she gives it her support, even though she helped negotiate it when she was Secretary of State in the first Obama administration, but Trump wants to repudiate it. Of possibly greater concern to Australia is that Trump says he, if elected, will declare China a currency manipulator, which under existing US legislation would then give a Trump administration the authority to impose tariffs of up to 46% on everything that China exports to the United States. Now, it's ironic that among the principal casualties of any such move would be the lower income working Americans that Trump purports to represent, who probably spend a bigger proportion of their income on cheap Chinese imports than the high income Americans of which Trump is one. Uh, but Nonetheless, uh, the effect will go beyond that. Almost certainly, they would be a significant negative shock for the Chinese economy, which is in turn our biggest trading partner by a wide margin. And it's hard to believe that the Chinese wouldn't retaliate to such an overtly aggressive measure on the trade front on the part of any future Trump administration. So an economic conflict between the world's two largest economies, between two of our most important trading partners is something that would bound to be a negative development for the world economy and in particular for Australia. It's no wonder that markets are apprehensive about that prospect. In addition, Donald Trump says that he is going to legislate the biggest tax cuts that have ever been proposed by a candidate for the US presidency, whilst at the same time spending more on, among other things, US infrastructure. And it's hard to see how that wouldn't result in a significant increase in the US budget deficit. Trump says that he will institute special tax measures designed to encourage American corporations to bring back on shore some of the 
several hundred billions of dollars that American companies currently hold offshore because of the way the US tax system currently works. And that could perhaps help to pay for some of what Trump promises to do on both sides of the budget. But it's very hard to see how it could pay for even a fraction of what he proposes to do. The End results likely to be a combination of looser fiscal policy and tighter monetary policy, which many people see as likely to put upward pressure on the US dollar. My own view is that the way markets are likely to interpret the Trump administration's trade policies and the likelihood that foreigners who have trillions of dollars invested in the US are likely to respond to what they will see as a potentially hostile US administration makes it more likely that the US dollar will go down rather than up against other currencies. And that would, among other things, mean upward pressure on the Australian dollar, which the Reserve Bank certainly doesn't want to see at this time. So it would provide an additional and unwelcome complication for new Reserve Bank Governor Phil Lowe as he settles into his responsibilities as head of Australia's central bank. All told, it's hard to see anything good from an economic perspective, let alone any other perspectives that could come to the world economy or for Australia from the election of Donald Trump as president of the United States on the 8th of November. Now, the Nonpartisan Committee for Responsible Federal Budget says Trump's proposal would boost the debt by $5.3 trillion over the next decade, while Clinton would keep the country on its current trajectory, increasing the debt only by $200 billion over the same time period. I mean, that $5.3 trillion is a lot of money to add to a debt. Yes, it is. And that study, which you quote, Committee for Responsible Fiscal Policy, is one of the ones that I had in mind in making the observations I did before about the likely impact on the US budget of Donald Trump's policies should he be elected President of the United States on the 8th of November. That's just one of a number of things that markets are likely to be very concerned about. And this is, of course, you know, quite a turnaround because historically markets have tended to prefer Republican administrations to Democratic ones. Uh, that's despite the fact that history suggests the stock market has done better under Democratic administrations than under Republican ones. But more broadly, uh, those who operate in financial markets think, uh, perhaps for ideological rather than practical reasons, that Republican administrations are more market and business friendly than Democratic ones. Donald Trump, however, is a very different kettle of fish. That's one reason why the Republican administration views him so warily. Uh, Wall Street in particular has very little to be enthusiastic about from a Trump presidency. And I would argue that the broader spread of US business, to say nothing of the US population, ought to be and in many cases is quite apprehensive about the possible outcomes of the US election next month. Now, uh, the other big story, of course, was Theresa May on the weekend announcing the uh, March date for Article 50, and uh, it looks like it will be a hard Brexit, a complete exit from the EU over the next two years, and uh, that has sent the pound crashing. Uh, what's your view about that? Well, the big move in the pound, of course, happened as a result of the Brexit vote on the 23rd of June, which was something that markets had not priced. 
So as always happens when markets are confronted with an event that they had put a very low probability on, there was quite a savage reaction. Interestingly, since then, many of the more bearish scenarios for the immediate impact on the British economy haven't played out. Yes, there were big falls in both business and consumer confidence in July, immediately after the vote, but retail sales have held up fairly well, and other indicators of the British economy likewise suggest that the feared lurch into recession following the Brexit vote hasn't so far eventuated. Now, that doesn't mean that there will be no consequences from a British exit from the European Union, especially if, as Theresa May has now foreshadowed, it's a hard exit, one in which the British government places more importance on preventing immigration from the EU than it does on retaining the same access to the European single market as it's enjoyed since it entered the EU in the mid-1970s. It seems fairly clear from what European leaders are saying that if Britain post-Brexit wanted the same access to the single market as is enjoyed by Norway and Switzerland, then it would have to subscribe to at least the same terms, which are complying with all the rules of the single market without having any say in it, as including the rules relating to the free movement of people and contributing to the EU budget without having any say in how that budget is framed or how the money is spent. And it's hard to see the British population acceding to any of those terms. So Theresa May's announcement is consistent with her promise to respect the will of the British people in this regard. What she's hoping is that over the two years commencing in March next year, Britain will be able to negotiate what she can regard as a satisfactory set of arrangements which set out the terms on which Britain will be able to access the European single market that still takes close to half of Britain's goods exports, and in the meantime, negotiate trade agreements with Britain's non-EU trading partners that will open up new opportunities. Now, it remains to be seen whether other governments attach the same degree of importance to that as the British government does. The US administration, for example, and we're talking here, of course, about the outgoing Obama administration, but presumably the Clinton administration, if Hillary's elected, would have the same perspective, doesn't regard negotiating an agreement with Britain as particularly important. Australia may well want to negotiate an agreement with a post-Brexit Britain, but the trade links between Britain and Australia are much smaller than they were before Britain went into the common market in the mid-1970s. And even if Australia and Britain struck a good deal from both their perspectives, it wouldn't do a great deal to boost either economy. I think it's inevitable that the British economy will experience weaker growth and Britain will be a poorer country than it otherwise would have been as a result of Brexit. And if we can draw the two issues together, the concern is the extent to which economic policy in both Britain and the United States is following a more 
inward-looking, nationalistic, protectionist and regulated tone in response to political pressures. And there are, of course, echoes of that in continental Europe as well, where we see more countries being ruled by authoritarian, illiberal regimes with the chance of right-wing authoritarian parties making further inroads in elections in both France and Germany next year in that front. And of course, we have echoes of that here in Australia too, although fortunately, and probably as a result of Australia's much superior economic performance over the last 25 years, those authoritarian and illiberal voices remain very much at the fringe of Australian politics rather than at the centre of it as they are on both sides of the Atlantic now. Saul Leslake, it's always delightful talking to you. Thank you very much for your time. That's a pleasure. Thanks for having me again, Leon. So what do you think? Are you as scared as, uh, well, not scared. I mean, Saul's never scared, but, you know, as cautious? Well, markets uh, have good, good reason to be nervous. Uh, you know, they don't like uncertainty. I mean, so far, the polls look hopeful that uh, Hillary Clinton's in front and uh, they're hoping that will stay. But, uh, you know, there's still a few weeks left. Yeah, indeed. And and, almost, and they're very, they are very close. But I think on, on balance, Clinton probably catch it because and then the world will breathe, breathe a sigh of relief and the Chinese can slow down a little bit. Indeed. Anyway, Leon, uh, now the news. What do we got? Well, Gary, for a start, British Prime Minister Theresa May pledged that Britain will begin the formal Brexit process by the end of March. May says she plans to trigger Article 50 at that time, starting the two-year process that will see Britain formally withdrawing from the European Union. And that means Britain's exit would be completed by the end of March 2019, leaving her one year to build support for the Brexit arrangements ahead of the next election, which has to be held in 2020. And she's promised to introduce what she calls a Great Repeal Bill in the next Queen's speech, doing away with the act that took the UK into the EU. And the legislation will remove the European Communities Act 1972 from Britain's statute book. But at the same time, the government would enshrine all existing EU law into British law. And I have to say, Gary, the market has reacted really strongly. The British pound fell back to a near three-decade low it reached following the Brexit referendum after Prime, after May hinted that she's ready for the hard Brexit. Uh, Sterling also declined against all third of my major peers. May used her biggest speech yet on the UK, leaving the EU to signal she's willing to surrender membership to the single market in return for more power of immigration, lawmaking and the budget. She's also signalled it would be a hard Brexit and she's told delegates at the Conservative Party's annual conference that she'll curb immigration. And Gary... Kel Harur, May's tough talk on Brexit put so much pressure on Sterling that the UK has fallen below France in the global table of economic powers when measured at market exchange rates. And you have to think that Paris would be terribly pleased about that. (laughs) I think so. Now, in Australia, of course, the big news story for the week was banks. And I have to say, in the same week that banks' executives were being dragged before a parliamentary committee, the government introduced criminal penalties and regulations to stop banks manipulating the bank bill swap rate. And the changes mean that bankers' rigged interest rate, interest affecting home loans, deposits and other financial products could be jailed. And the move by the government comes in the face of calls from the opposition for a Royal Commission into banks and an Australian Institute survey showing that two out of three voters are in favour of it. Uh, it also comes at a time when Australian Securities and Investments Commission has taken three of the big four banks, ANZ, NAB and Westpac to court, over manipulating the bank bill swap rate. And of course the bank bill swap rate is a benchmark interest rate used to price 
$2,000 billions of dollars in business loans, derivatives, and other securities in the Australian financial market. And it's basically the rate at which banks will lend to each other. And the big four banks control 80% of the Australian mortgage market. Now, these new penalties and regulations were recommended by the Council of Financial Regulators, which is basically the Reserve Bank of Australia, the Australian Prudential Regulation Authority, ASIC and Treasury. And the changes turn rate rigging into a criminal and civic offence, carrying as yet unspecified jail terms for banks or individual traders. It outlaws manipulating any financial benchmark or financial product used to determine a financial benchmark in Australia, whether it's done in Australia or overseas. And that would also involve making false or misleading statements or engaging in dishonest conduct in relation to determining a bank bill swap or other benchmarks, including the S&P ASX 200 index, the cash rate, the consumer price index, and the ASX bond future settlement price. Yeah, I've got a question. Yeah, who's going to fix the uh, the rate now? I, nobody in the industry want to borrow, but it's too risky. It's going to be quite an issue to sort through now. It's very much a signal for the government. And uh, I think in a way it's preempting. It was preempting what happened this week with the bank executives being hauled before the House of Reps Economics Committee. The government wants to introduce what they call significant cultural change in the banking industry. But what we saw was the head of the Commonwealth Bank, Ian Narab, denying there were in systemic issues. He admitted banks could do a better job explaining interest rate decisions with growing public anger over being Australia's big four banks, holding back part of the Reserve Bank's August cut. And he conceded there'd been problems with Cominsure, which saw the bank's insurance arm unfairly treating customers and, getting in, and customers getting inappropriate advice. However, he defended the bank's profit his own $12 million plus pay packet. And at the same time, he said none of the people responsible had been sacked. Now, the ANZ Bank uh, was Shane Elliott. He said they had sacked people. He apologised and he pledged to work harder on internal systems following problems in its wealth management divisions and troubled rural lending business. And Gary, I, I, I've watched this and I've become quite cynical. I mean, I reckon there's a political rule. You don't call for an inquiry unless you know the outcome. Absolutely right. It goes right back to Gar Barwick in the Howard government. You never call a committee unless you know what it's going to decide. That's right. And uh, that's why Malcolm chose a grilling by the House of Reps Economics Committee rather than a Royal Commission. And it's also why Labor is continuing to call for one. Yeah, that's true. And besides which, you've got um, Ian Narev apologises, which didn't cost him a cent, and I think indicated that it's going to be business as usual. Uh, the ANZ guy apologised, uh, sounded a bit more um, contrite, I suppose, but nothing much has changed, and I doubt it will. Well, no, no, well, this is it. I mean, you're just going to have a whole lot of apologies. Yeah. And and uh, and frankly, I don't know whether our uh, lawmakers are that rigorous in getting answers. Well, apart from, uh, what's her name? Julia, Julia Banks. Julia Banks. The Liberal, she was fantastic, yeah. She, yeah, she was great, but um, you think about her track uh, record, I mean, she was a very senior person. Yeah, absolutely. And she's got a, got a handle on it, but there's a lot of lightweights in there. That's right. Now, uh, Gary, the International Monetary Fund, which has just put out a report warning about uh, debt, has trimmed its forecast for Australia and the world for 2016-17, uh, warning economic growth is moving sideways. And the global economy is expected to grow 3.4% next year, 0.1 percentage point less than in the IMF's previous world economic outlook six months ago, largely because of disappointing growth in the US and the shockwaves from Brexit. And Australian GDP is expected to increase 2.7% in 2017, after rising 2.9% percent this year. And the 2017 GDP forecast has been cut 0.3 percentage points, although growth this year has been revised up in light of the strong first half. And the IMF also warned that a continuing economic stagnation around the world is fueling more 
populist sentiment against trade and immigration, a la Trump and Brexit. And it singled out, of course, Trump and Brexit as the two key areas of uncertainty. Yeah, that's a great deal of uncertainty. Now, at his first meeting as Reserve Bank of Australia Governor, Philip Lowe has left the cash rate unchanged at the record low of 1.5%. And this comes after the ABA cut rates in May and August. Uh, There are still economists tipping a rate cut in November. Okay, they'll cut the rate. I can't see it doing very much, except possibly pushing the housing prices up a bit. Well, the key issue will be the inflation figures, which come out, I think, on October the 26th. So let's watch out for that. And uh, consumer confidence has slipped from last week's high, falling 2.2% the weekend in second of October, according to the latest ANZ Roy Morgan Consumer Confidence Index. But what's interesting is that Australian retail sales smashed expectations in August, rising 0.4% to $25.128 billion in seasonally adjusted terms. And markets have been expecting an increase of 0.2% following flat growth in July. And according to the ABS, the main reason for the gain was a surge in department store sales, which jumped 3.5%, and they'd previously fallen 5.8% in July, leaving overall sales flat. Yeah, that's pretty. 3.5% up's pretty good. I think that's very, very good, and it surprised the market. It really did. Now, uh, a recovery in food and beverages has lifted Australian manufacturing off its 14-month low, recording in August. Uh, manufacturing has bounced back with Australian Industry Group's Performance Management Index adding 2.9%. 2.9 points to 49.8 in September. The number looks promising. It's still below the critical 50-point level, showing that manufacturing is expanding. And at the same time, uh, the Australian Industry Group's Performance of Services Index, that continued to contract the index according to PMI score of 48.9, below the critical level of 50, which separates expansion from contraction. So there's a bit of a worry there. South Australia's power blackout continues to take its toll hitting companies across the board, including BHP Billiton, Oz Minerals, Arium, and the tuna fishing industry in Port Lincoln. Arium, which went into administration in April, says it might incur costs as much as $40 million following the storms that caused blackouts across South Australia. It still works in Wyala, have not been operating since the blackout on September the 28th. And a spokesman for administrators, Quartermintha, told the media the company faces costs of $4 million a day with operations potentially lying dormant for as many as 10 days. BHP Billiton's Olympic Dam remains closed. No timeline has been set for production to be restored. Oz Minerals says it might fall short of its gold production guidance because of South Australian blackouts, but it's still confident its copper production is on target. And in its statement to the market, the miner said production at its mine, Providence Hill, which was stopped on September the 28th when power connections were severed, would be back in power within the next seven to ten days. And Port Lincoln, which sits on the southern tip of South Australia's Air Peninsula, was one of the hardest hit places in South Australia. And the blackout there lasted 54 hours. Power was only restored in Friday. And Port Lincoln is one of Australia's wealthiest towns full of tuna millionaires. Well, they've all got generators on their boats, so what are they complaining about? <laughs> That's right, but can you imagine a blackout lasting 54 hours? Finally, uh, the really interesting story, Presto will be the first big streaming service to drop out of the market, and Perth-based online video streaming and DVD Blu-ray postal rental company, QuickFlix, will emerge from administration in a deal that will see US-based Karma Media Holdings take over the trouble company. And Foxtel has snapped up its share of subscription video on-demand service, and Presto from its uh, joint venture partner, Seven West Media, and Presto, which has been competing with services like Netflix and Stan, had been struggling to get any market share in attracting subscribers. And so Presto will cease on the 31st of 
January 2017, and its customers will be able to access the new Foxtel Play product, which is a pay TV's IP product from December 2016. Now, QuickFlip was originally set up as the Australian version of Netflix and started out as a DVD home delivery service. We had a model which was similar to Netflix, which also began as a DVD rental service back in 1998, and it was put into administration this year. Now, QuickFlix creditors have approved a deed of company arrangements that will see Karma Media Holdings paying $1.3 million, and the company will pay out some of the money owed to creditors who will receive 21.5 cents in the dollar if they're unsecured. Yeah, well, kind of a collapse, isn't it? That's right, that's right. So uh, there's a lot of movement in the um, in the video streaming industry. And that's it for this week, Gary. And uh, next week, we've got a terrific interview with Daniel Isaac from uh, Coffee Emporium in Sydney. Yeah, a very interesting sort of model. You've got the Coffee Emporium. It's uh, They're growing quite quickly, aren't they? That's right. So it'll be terrific. In the meantime, uh, keep in touch with us on Twitter at TalkingBizBZ or on Facebook. Stay safe, and we'll talk to you next week.